Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Colored Red. I'm, I do apologize for the late episode this month. I kind of had this idea that I was going to be doing sort of a mid-month episode that would be an historical murder. And then at the end of every month, I'll be doing a, a more detailed case, a larger case. And exactly what date of the week those falls on has become sort of varied. So I do apologize, but on my Facebook and Instagram, I'll have updates of about the time I should be releasing an episode. And at some point in the future, I hope to be getting a more scheduled um, time to release these episodes. So um, today I'm going to bring you a story from all the way back in 1936. It's a unique story um, because it's a tragedy not only for the victims, but for one of the men eventually convicted of the crimes. On a warm August morning, the sun was still down, and the residents of Pueblo had only been in bed for a few hours. 72-year-old Sally Crumpley was spending the night at a friend's house while on the way to see relatives and was sleeping in the same bed as her 47-year-old niece, Mrs. Lily McMurtry, and Mrs. McMurtry's grandson, Burton, um, was sleeping on the bed in between them. At some point, an unknown intruder entered the home and bludgeoned Sally Crumpley and Lily McMurtry. Lily McMurtry ended up surviving the attack, as did her grandson Burton, who for unknown reasons was not awakened during the attack. Few clues were left behind, and mysteriously nothing of value was taken from the home. The group was discovered by Mrs. McMurtry's husband, who came home from a trip with friends at around 2.15 a.m. Mr. McMurtry worked for Colorado Fuel and Iron, as did uh, many of the residents of Pueblo at the time, as well as a lot of the neighborhood that they lived in. Mr. McMurtry arrived home to find his grandson crying in the living room. He had awoken to find his grandmother was injured, and she told him to go to the neighbor's house for help, but he was too afraid to leave the house, and when Mr. McMurtry rushed inside to his wife's side, she could only gasp that she was sick. In a state of shock, he then ran to a neighbor's house where they called a doctor, and it wasn't until his son Floyd McMurtry arrived a short time later that the police were called to the home. Mrs. McMurtry had only a few strike wounds, but she ended up recovering. Unfortunately, Mrs. Crumley was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. She had a series of bruises covering her arms and several marks from blows around her face. A large, blunt instrument had caved in her skull close to her right eye, and there were several small stab wounds around her face. The ultimate cause of death was determined to be a compound fracture to her skull. The scene was a strange one. The killer left behind no weapon, and a small amount of blood was found in a white purse belonging to Mrs. McMurtry. No explanation for the presence of the blood was ever put forth, and the purse still contained money that had not been taken. Police questioned Floyd, the son of Lily and Mr. McMurtry, and he said he had left the Pueblo Airport Dance Pavilion where he was hanging out with friends at around 11.30 when he stopped home to find everyone asleep and left for a party going on later that night. They asked him why he had returned home, and he said it was to retrieve a dollar from his mother's purse. He said he told his father about taking the dollar, but his father denied that he had ever told him. Floyd McMurtry was taken into custody until further notice for a listed parole violation charge related to a prior theft. In addition to his questionable explanation of events, other details about the case puzzled investigators. As I said before, the young four-year-old Burton was not awakened during the brutal beating of the two women he slept directly next to. Additionally, the houses in this neighborhood were incredibly close, and their immediate neighbor's bedroom and location where she slept was only a few feet from where the beatings had taken place. She had also not been disturbed. Police somehow determined that a missing hammer from the residence might have been used as the murder weapon. 
They indicated that they owned four hammers and that a short claw hammer was missing. However, later on, it was determined that Burton sometimes played with it and that he might have mislaid it somewhere. Despite no evidence indicating the involvement of Floyd McMurtry, the jury for the coroner requested his continued custody. Two weeks later, with Floyd still in custody, a second brutal attack occurred during the night. This occurred in the same community where houses were built closely, and Riley and Peggy Drain left their two daughters sleeping at home while they were attending a dance at a local nightclub. Their son, nine-year-old Billy Drain, was also spending the night away with friends. That night, 15-year-old Dorothy and 12-year-old Barbara Drain were left sleeping in their bed when an unknown intruder entered their home. As the parents returned from a night out, they noticed that the living room light was off that they usually left on. When Riley Drain entered the home, he heard a groan coming from the girl's bedroom and went back to find Barbara curled up on blood-soaked sheets in the corner of the room. No sound was coming from Dorothy as she was laying face down near the bed. Dorothy had a gash on the back of her head, a blackened eye, and a bruised mouth. She was pronounced dead at the scene, and Barbara was taken immediately to the local hospital where she was in critical condition. Half of the town turned out on the street to watch the investigation before officers roped off the block and pushed onlookers away. Dorothy was killed by a gash to the skull that was about two inches long and that shattered her skull above her right eye. She had been struck several times during the attack, resulting in bruising on her face. There was an, also an indication that she had been criminally assaulted, which at that time was a term used for rape in newspaper articles from that era. Evidence at the scene was, again, limited. There was a heel print on a bed sheet, some smudged fingerprints, and a complete palm print on the floor. Several footprints were located in the alley leading from the home. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene in an attempt to trace the scent back to a perpetrator, but the trail was eventually lost. Pueblo announced a reward of $1,000 for any information leading to an arrest. Several men were arrested and questioned, but all were eventually released. Neighbors in the area were questioned, and the girl's grandfather lived very close and said that he heard screams that night at around 1130, but assumed that they came from farther away. The police made an unprecedented effort to find the murder weapon. They moved all along the alleys and vacant lots in the area, and even completely drained the Bessemer Ditch, which was a canal running through Pueblo. They were unfortunately unable to locate the murder weapon with this method. During this time, two other women came out to say that they had been attacked late uh, the same night that the girls were attacked, but that they had survived. They described the man as lust mad and being about five feet and a half tall and 135 pounds. They could never prove if that incident was connected to the drain assault. The police were convinced that the drain assault was somehow connected to the Crumpley murder, which at the time was only four blocks away. The man entered both homes through unlocked doors, and the question comes up as to why the Drain family didn't lock their doors after that murder had occurred so close, but the families at that time thought that they had had their man since Floyd McMurtry had been arrested. Dorothy Drain was buried at the Mountain View Cemetery with six of her cousins acting as pallbearers. Standing with the large crowd attending was a man named Frank Aguilar. The chief of police had men stationed to watch the crowd as he suspected that whoever had come after the girls had some kind of grudge against their father, who acted as a supervisor and had discharged a number of men from their jobs at the WPA. As it turns out, Frank Aguilar had been dismissed from his job by Mr. Drain a short time before the murders occurred. Even more curiously, Aguilar had approached Mr. Drain only a few days after the murder of his daughter and gave him five nickels to help with the funeral costs. Aguilar had been extensively questioned by the police and claimed to have no involvement in the murders, 
But at the funeral, he showed up nonetheless, and he was crudely dressed in overalls and a work shirt. And he approached police at one point, who were posted around the funeral, and asked if he could speak with Mr. Drain. He indicated that he personally knew the girls, and that he had been inside Mr. Drain's home on several occasions. Since they were already suspicious of Aguilar, they arrested him, and inside Aguilar's home, they found a small hatchet. No detectable blood was found on the hatchet with the limited capabilities that they had at the time, but the hatchet blade had nicks in it that perfectly matched the nicks on the wound of Dorothy Drain. All other suspects in the case at this point were released, except for Frank Aguilar. So with their man, Frank Aguilar, presumably caught, on Wednesday evening, August the 2nd, the chief of police received a telephone call from a sheriff in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and the sheriff said the following, Chief Grady, we have a fellow here who says that he killed the little drain girl in your city. He's a nut. He can't even read or write, and he's told us two or three different stories, but he seems to know all about the drain murder, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's the man you want. The Wyoming Sheriff explained that Joe Arity had been arrested wandering around Cheyenne's railroad yards looking at the trains. They believed he was in an outfit similar to that of some AWOL soldiers that they were searching for, so they arrested him, not noticing that he wasn't a soldier. Joe Arity said that he was from Pueblo, and he changed his story often, um, but ultimately confessed to killing Dorothy Drain after entering the home that night. At first, he claimed he had beaten the girls with a club, but later he changed it to a hatchet. The officers who heard the confession admitted that by all appearances he was clinically insane. He said that he had entered the dwelling around 11 p.m. Then after killing, he went back to his parents' house, which he gave three different wrong addresses for. He said when he arrived back home, his mother and sister had beaten him and locked him in an upstairs room, and he later escaped and caught a freight train up to Cheyenne where he was arrested. When the police eventually located the Arity home, it was, again, four blocks from the drain home, and it actually had no upstairs at all. The family was at a Colorado State Fair when they were located and taken in for questioning about their son's involvement in the murder. Henry Arity, a man who also worked at the WPA, denied that his son had even been in Pueblo at the time of the murders. Arity was taken to the drain home in secrecy to reenact the crime. At this time, Arity implicated a friend named Frank, and again, Arity changed his story. He said that he buried the weapon in his parents' yard, and now he said that he and Frank had washed it off in a spigot and wrapped it in a shirt and placed it in a laundry basket. When Frank Aguilar and Joe Arity were placed in the same room, the police asked Joe if he knew the man, and he said that he was Frank. Aguilar denied knowing Joe Arity at all, and despite any of the confusion that was going on, Joe Arity was also arrested for the murder. Shortly after this, Frank Aguilar was reminded that the axe matching Dorothy Drain's wound was found in his home, and he penned a full confession. He also implicated Joe Arity as an accomplice, but did not explain why he would have teamed up with a stranger who was at the mental level of a five-year-old to commit the crimes. In true fashion of the ups and downs of this case, though, Frank Aguilar later repudiated his confession. Frank Aguilar's trial began on December 14, 1936, and his defense lawyer's strategy was to convince the jury that his confession had been coerced. They claimed that he had been mercilessly grilled. However, Riley Drain took the stand and testified that he had personally gone to talk with Frank Aguilar at the prison about the murder of his daughter and attempted murder of Barbara. And at this time, Frank began to fidget and nervously dabbed a sweat from his forehead in the courtroom. 
Aguilar's confession was admitted to the court with the exception of the statement that he had in fact killed Dorothy Drain. Barbara Drain was brought in to testify as well, and she pointed to Frank Aguilar and indicated that he was the man that she had seen in her room with a wooden expression on his face. She made no mention of any other man being there at the time. Additionally, there was some loose toxicology and trace evidence brought into the trial, with Dr. Francis McConnell testifying that the scraps from under Frank Aguilar's fingernails were identical to those taken from the girl's bedspread, and that she also found a hair belonging to Joe Arity in the room. I take this part with a definite grain of salt. Hair evidence is on its way out of being uh, conclusive, and it's never really been accurate, especially not so in 1936. In another bizarre turn of events later on in the evening, Aguilar admitted to his lawyer that he had, in fact, bludgeoned the girls. The next morning, the defense now tried to reason that their client had committed the crime, but was innocent by reason of insanity. Aguilar himself was never called to the stand to try to defend himself, as he deemed it unnecessary. Aguilar was convicted after 28 minutes of deliberation for the murder of Dorothy Drain. He appealed for a new trial, but was denied and was sentenced to die the following May. A week later, Joe Arity was put on trial. The first trial was one to determine his sanity, as he was declared a mental incompetent in 1925 while spending time at an in, as an inmate in a home in Grand Junction for the feeble-minded. While in custody, doctors observed him for 30 days and testified that he was mentally a child of four to six years old. And using their terms for the time, the state of Wyoming had also declared that he was a feeble-minded moron. In those times, the term moron was used to describe a person who scored below a 70 on an IQ test, and a score of 98 is needed to be considered normal. It was stated that Joe's score was a 46. Despite all of this, the jury declared Joe Arity sane and competent during the time of the murders. So on April 12, 1937, Joe Arity stood trial for the murder of Dorothy Drain. Arity was brought into the courtroom and appeared frozen, never really uttering a word. His defense attorney asserted that the, any testimony from Arity and his own confession was valueless, since he would show that Arity could not comprehend the meaning of his actions or words. Sheriff Carroll took the stand and admitted that he was certain Arity had lied when implicating Frank, and that he felt Arity was below normal intelligence and continued to describe the different confessions Arity had presented. Multiple doctors at this point testified that Arity would say yes to anything if he thought it would please the person asking the question, and that he had no ability to see that he was implicating himself or what his answers meant. He simply wanted to please a person who asked him a question. The defense claimed that Arity vaguely knew that it was wrong to commit a murder, but he could not explain why. And in a further test of his competence, Arity was unable to determine a fountain pen from a lead pencil and that he called the pen an ink pencil. Arity was called to the stand where it was demonstrated to the jury that he had little concept over what was happening when he answered questions with a yes or no. When asked if he knew what an oath was, he said no. He could not correctly state his own age. He had no idea who Franklin Roosevelt or George Washington were. In a cross-examination, Joe Arity said that he did not know Dorothy Drain or Frank Aguilar. He was asked if he knew the psychiatrists, and he simply stated that he knew that they were talking about him. Another thing to note from the trial is that the family of the slain Drain girl uh, were not present, even though they had been present for the trial of Frank Aguilar. And yet, despite all of this, a jury convicted Joe Arity of first-degree murder. When the verdict was read, he appeared to not even understand and smiled at officers in the room. 
Aguilar was awarded a brief stay of execution during which he confessed to also killing Mrs. Crumpley, though the reasons were not clear. Frank Aguilar was put to death on Friday the 13th in August of 1937, and at no time during his death row stint did he continue to profess his innocence or demonstrate any remorse. While awaiting his own execution, Arity adjusted well inside prison. As guards checked on him, he appeared to be polishing a metal food plate to make a mirror and making faces at himself and laughing. The warden at the time, you may remember from my Prolo Laughlin episode, was Roy Best, and he had a history of playing favorites with inmates that he considered to be innocent. Roy Best brought Joe uh, picture books and a bright red car with a wind-up mechanism. Arity would launch it across his cell until it crashed into a wall where he would yell, Car wreck! Car wreck! In 1938, while waiting on appeals, Roy Best gave Arity a wind-up toy train. He would stick the train outside the bars and wind it up, sending it down death row to his inmate friend Norman Wharton, who would turn it around and send it back. Sometimes inmates would, um, between this area, would stick a hand out and knock the train over, causing Joe to yell, fix the wreck, until the guards came in and righted the train and sent it on its way. Before his execution, Father Albert Schaller sat with him and asked him if he knew if he knew what was going to happen, and Arity mentioned that he just wanted to get it over with. Reporters were also allowed to speak with him as well, and one asked him if he knew why he was going to die, and he said it was because they wanted to get rid of him. His mother and sister and his aunt showed up and held him for the last time. On his way to the gas chamber, Arity appeared nervous, and Roy Best asked him some questions to take the tension off. He asked him, "'What are you going to do in heaven, Joe? Raise chickens?' Joe said he would leave that to another death row inmate, that he wanted to play the harp. Joe Arity was executed on January 6, 1939 in the gas chamber. His last meal was a bowl of ice cream. His family did not have enough money for a funeral, so he was buried in the prison's Woodpecker Hill, three graves away from Frank Aguilar. The Cheyenne detectives who turned in Joe Arity for no reason split the $1,000 reward. In 2007, a group of Citizens from Colorado Springs provided him with a new headstone, believing that he uh, was wrongly convicted and executed. Arity was officially pardoned in 2011, 72 years after his death. As evidence proved, he was coerced into a confession. The evidence was provided by then-Governor Bill Ritter, a former district attorney, after research had shown that Arity was likely not in Pueblo when the crime happened and had been coerced into confessing. It wasn't mentioned until later, but Arity also confessed to a number of crimes that he couldn't have possibly committed, further bolstering the obvious conclusion that he just said things that he thought people wanted to hear. Warden Best described Joe Arity as the happiest man who ever lived on death row. You can see some pictures of uh, Joe Arity's gravestone. I'll be posting those on Instagram as well as Facebook, and they're very sad. There's a very small little toy train that's usually left on his gravestone. I've been getting some amazing feedback and discussion lately from some of you guys messaging me um, relating to some cases that I've done, and I can't begin to describe to you how much uh, it means to me to have you guys um, interacting with me about this and talking with me about these. If you find any mistakes or problems or you just like to discuss any of these episodes with me, I'm more than happy to do so, and I'll also probably be doing some episodes to further expand on some of the crimes that I've touched on before. It's just amazing to know that people are listening and people are learning something and people are 
following what I'm doing here and it's not just me just talking out into the wind or anything like that. So thanks guys so much. Again, uh, as with all of the episodes that I do, I'll have some pictures up for this. And in a couple weeks, I'll have a brand new episode for you guys that I hope you will enjoy. Until then.